Well, I'm honored to be here, and I have a world of respect for Dr. David Reagan. Every time he came to our church, it was a revival, and it is an honor to be here. But i got to tell you, I, I am a morning person. I feel great at 6.30 in the morning. I am not an afternoon person. My body clock shuts down around 2 o'clock, and I just quit battling it a few years ago. And so every day at this time, I take a nap. So I heard about a preacher who dreamed that he was preaching, and he woke up and he was. So I hope you're able to stay. You know, Dr. Reagan, I did one Sunday evening. I slept through a church service that I was supposed to be preaching. I had a funeral sermon the next day. I had more work to do in my Sunday night sermon, so I stayed at the church all afternoon worked on those two messages and about 6.15 I was just, I was finished I was just exhausted, church started at 7 o'clock and I said to myself well I think I'll just lay down here on the floor of my office and rest for a minute well I lay down and I thought well I'm getting drowsy, I'm going to sleep well I'll, I'll hear the people coming in or my wife or somebody who cares uh, will <laughs> come in and wake me up next thing I knew I woke up and I thought I thought this was Sunday this is Sunday. I looked at my watch. It said 7.35. Church started at 7 o'clock. I could hear the singing in the distance. And so I said, what am I going to do? And I raced into the restroom, washed my face, and walked into the auditorium confidently like I'd been counseling the mayor or something. <laughs> and the worship leader was just dragging on the worship service, uh, waiting for me to come in. So as soon as I walked in, he stopped. And I walked up toward the platform, and I didn't know whether it was time to have announcements or time to me to preach or what. And I meant to say to him, where are we in the service? And I said, where am I? <laughs> he said, announcements, announcements. Well, you, you know how it is when you wake up and you're foggy. I looked out. I could not think of a single thing going on in church to announce. And I just stood there. Finally, I said, folks, I... I got to be honest with you, I, I went to sleep in the office. I just woke up. Well, they went bananas for about five minutes. The next morning I came in and there was a do not disturb sign on my office door. I opened up the door and all my furniture was taken out and there was just a cot with a teddy bear sucking the stomach. So you don't have me in my prime time of the day today. If you have a Bible, uh, uh, turn in Scripture to 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter. I'm going to be reading eight verses there in just a moment. Last year, my friend Tommy Barnes asked me if I would participate with him in a member guest golf tournament at Valhalla Country Club in Lowell. Now, now Valhalla is the elite country club in town. It's way out of my league. But I really like Tommy, so I, I agreed to participate. But I was so nervous the first three nine-hole matches that I was just hacking it all over the place. But Tom played so well that we won our first three matches. In fact, we, we won our flight. And I said, Tommy, I'm really glad we're winning, but I'm making no contribution at all. I'm not making any contribution. He said, oh, no. I said, you're making a big contribution. All these guys are intimidated to play with a preacher. They can't cuss or anything. They're way off their game. (laughs) That's why we're winning. You just keep doing your thing. 
But during a lull in the action, I struck up a conversation with a businessman from Cincinnati. And he said, you know, preacher, I'm not a religious man. I, I don't go to church. But I know something's wrong with our country. He said, uh, we've lost our values. And uh, we're going the wrong direction. Even most people in the world recognize that we are living in extraordinary times. Something is not right. Something is different. Something catastrophic is about to happen. Now, we believers are confident that we are drawing near to the coming of Jesus Christ. When the trump of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. And there are numerous signs that indicate that the Lord's coming is near. The dry bones of Israel being resurrected as a nation. All the surrounding nations coming against Israel. The Jewish people returning to the Holy Land in unbelief. I think the proliferation of pornography reminds us that Jesus said, As it was in the days of Noah, when men's hearts were wicked continually, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Also, the Supreme Court's approval of gay marriage and its expanded acceptance worldwide should remind us that Jesus said, as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be in the day of the coming of the Son of Man. Adrian Rogers used to say, for the Christian, the world is getting gloriously dark. (laughs) Now, I was a pastor of the same church for 40 years. And I conduct mentoring retreats once a month for preachers and I consult with preachers about situations in their churches. So I'm particularly interested in what the Bible says about the conditions of the church in the last days. And what I see in the church reminds us that we are nearing the Lord's return and motivates me to long for his appearing. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4 beginning with verse 1, about the condition of the church in the last days and how we are to react when we see these events coming to pass. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who have longed for his appearing. Now, notice the bookend phrases in this section that kind of cradle this whole paragraph. In view of the Lord's return, longing for the Lord's return in verse 8. And this section suggests how we should respond to end time events unfolding in the church. 
First, Paul admonishes us, preach the word, even though it will become increasingly unpopular to do so. The longer I was in ministry, the more impressed I became with the power of this book. When the Bible is preached, amazing things happen. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It's able to penetrate the thoughts and the intent of the heart. Some supernatural things happen when the Bible is preached. So early in my ministry, I decided that the majority of my preaching was going to be through a book of the Bible or tracing a Bible character in the Old Testament. I think the first series that I preached was through 1 Corinthians. And I got to 1 Corinthians 6, and the first part of 1 Corinthians 6 says, don't take your brother to court. I thought, what am I going to do with this? Well, it says, don't take your brother to court. So I'm going to talk about why we don't sue one another. We don't air our dirty laundry to the world. We trust the leaders to be mediators and we learn to forgive one another. It was an okay sermon. But about six months later, I learned that two deacons in our church who had a business partnership had had a falling out and they were about to sue one another when I preached that sermon series, a sermon, and they decided not to do it. Now, had I waited until they sued each other and said, well, today I think I'm going to preach on 1 Corinthians 6. Don't take your brother to court. They would have felt targeted and it would have agitated the situation more. We hear a lot, preachers hear a lot about preaching to people's needs. But you know, the Holy Spirit knows about needs that we're not aware of. And when the Bible is preached, it meets the needs of people. And when the Bible is preached, it feeds the believer. Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And the Bible is meat and milk and bread for the soul. In fact, Hebrews 4 says it's a double-edged sword. Because when we use it to cut other people, it cuts ourselves. You see, when the Bible is preached, it edifies the preacher. There's a big difference between expository preaching, verse-by-verse preaching, and topical preaching. And the biggest difference is what it does for the preacher. Because if the preacher is digging into a passage, he is learning instead of just grabbing a verse from memory to reinforce what he wants to say. And the preacher is preaching from the overflow. He is filled. And when the Bible is preached, it reaches the lost. Preachers today are so focused on reaching the seeker that they dumb the message down so that the seeker won't miss it. But as a result, we can become shallow entertainers rather than shepherds feeding the flock. Fred Craddock wrote a book a while back called Overhearing the Gospel. And it's his contention that sometimes people hear the gospel better if they overhear it rather than thinking it's directed at them. For example, here's a couple having marital problems. And they come to a wedding ceremony and the preacher's talking to the bride and groom about sacrifices and unselfishness in marriage. And the couple sitting out in the audience with problems probably hears that better because their defenses are down than they would if they were sitting across the desk from the preacher in a counseling session. And if the seeker overhears the preacher talking to Christians, he's probably going to hear it better Especially if the Bible is being taught because the Holy Spirit works overtime when the word is exegeted and applied. Years ago, I preached, planned a series through 2 Thessalonians. And it's about the wrath of God and the rise of the Antichrist and warnings against idleness. And before I got up to preach the first sermon, I looked out and there was Gary Proctor's brother. 
And I knew Gary had been praying that his brother would come, been living a wild life. And of all times, I thought, the first time he comes to church, I'm starting this series through 2 Thessalonians. What have I got to say to him? But I looked at him occasionally when I was preaching and he was paying attention. He came back for the second sermon. He came back for the third sermon. After four sermons, he came forward and gave his life to Christ. And he was baptized. Just before he was baptized, he said, boy, that series on the wrath of God scared the hell out of me. (laughs) I believe he was right. I believe it did. There's tremendous power in the word of God. But in the last days, it will become increasingly unpopular to preach the Bible. Paul said, you preach the word correct, rebuke, and instruct For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. A popular television preacher was on the Oprah Winfrey show not very long ago. And Oprah Winfrey asked him, do you believe that there's only one way to God? And he smiled and said, Oprah, you know, the Bible says there's one way to God through Jesus. But I believe that there are many ways to Jesus. You see, we find clever ways to distort the truth and say what itching ears want to hear. Itching ears want to hear that there are many ways to God and you don't have to disagree with any other religion. Itching ears want to hear that the Bible contains words from God, but you have to judge for yourself what is authentic and what is not. And if it doesn't fit the cultural norms, then you can reject it as irrelevant because it actually was written 2,000 years ago. Itching ears want to hear that God may have used evolution to create the world. And you don't have to take the Genesis account literally. You can still be accepted in the scientific community and follow Jesus. Itching ears want to hear that couples can cohabitate without a marriage ceremony. After all, you're married in God's eyes. That's what matters. And you can save on taxes that way. Itching ears want to hear that the Bible's denunciation of homosexuality is no longer valid. We're more enlightened. Jesus didn't say anything about it, so we can be neutral too. You see, people want to hear about God's favor, God's love. They don't want to hear about judgment and hell. People want to be encouraged and they bristle up at the very idea of being rebuked because a preacher corrects or rebukes. People bristle up and say, who are you to judge me? You're you're, you're making me feel uncomfortable. I'm offended. So we cleverly shout grace and we whisper repentance and we seek to please men rather than God. Tony Campolo has been one of the most popular speakers at evangelical conventions over the last three decades. But Tony Campolo, last month, published an article explaining why he endorsed gay marriage. My wife led the way for me, he said. We have gay friends whose relationship I respect. And feelings and personalities trump the Bible. In the last days... People will gather around them teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear, and they'll turn aside to myths. Several weeks ago, Diane Sawyer interviewed Bruce Jenner, who had just announced that he was in the process of transgendering at age 65. But he said a weird thing. He said, you know, I still find myself attracted to women. And Diane Sawyer asked what I think is the most bizarre question I've ever heard on TV. She said... Are you a lesbian then? (laughs) 
Have we completely gone insane? (laughs) Thinking ourselves to be wise, we become fools. So I wrote a blog called An Open Letter to Bruce Jenner in which I said, Bruce, you are not a woman trapped in a man's body, nor are you a lesbian. You are a special creation of God trapped in a carnal body, and we all have various carnal temptations. Just as you once disciplined your body to win the decathlon, you now need to resist the evil desires that war against your soul. Now let me read just a portion of a letter another religious leader wrote to him, which was published in a religious publication. Dear Bruce Jenner, Jesus loves you and cares for you. True. Jesus loves the guy in Cleveland who kidnapped young women and held them hostage. That doesn't justify their behavior. I am deeply sorry for the way individuals have treated you in response to your recent interview with Diane Sawyer. Your life has meaning regardless of the ignorant and ill-thought comments that have been thrown your way. You take a big biblical stand, you're ignorant, you're insensitive. The letter writer says, this is a new and complicated conversation that people are scared to have. Well, not really. It's not new. Why else in the book of Deuteronomy would Moses warn against cross-dressing? That temptation must have existed 3,000 years ago. Some people will say that being transgender is a sin. And others will say that God created them that way. But no matter your stance... Showcasing love to a community that is struggling with a 40% suicide rate should be all Christians' number one priority. But let me ask you something. If you saw a motorist going the wrong way up an exit ramp, what's the most loving thing you can do for that person at the moment? Blare on your horn, wave and shout. And that may appear unloving to someone who is uninformed as a bystander. But it's the most loving thing you can do at the moment. For the time has come when men don't put up with sound doctrine, but they've turned aside to myths. Now, what should our reaction be? Our reaction should be preach the word even when it's out of season. I tell young preachers all the time, don't get caught up in the latest hip methodology of preaching one topical four-week series after another topical four-week series and just scratching the service. You know, uh, walking dead... Fifty Shades of Grey, Girls Gone Wild, How to Have the Best Sex Life Ever. Well, just preach the Bible. And all those subjects will come up and you can use them as examples, but just regularly feed people God's word. Now that takes hard work. Paul tells Timothy, you be prepared, you carefully instruct. That takes hours of study and focus. And it takes great patience because you don't see immediate results. The seed takes a while to grow and it takes humility because there will be a great number who go after the great number of teachers who say what itching ears want to hear. And so your numbers may not go up like someplace else. But remember, John the Baptist numbers went down the second year. And Jesus said, no greater man born to woman than John the Baptist. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Now, let me add a Side note here, we can do that in love. You can't preach the love of God with a clenched fist. You can be creative and you can be loving and apply the truth and people will hear it. I have a son who took a church in Florida a little over five years ago. And he said to me a few months, Daddy, I've discovered there are a number of 
couples in our church that are living together without marriage and nobody said anything about them about it for years. And I, I don't want to be the heavy as a new preacher, but I, I just got to say something about it. And what do you think I ought to do? Well, he preached a series through the book of Colossians. And he came to Colossians 3 where it says, take off the old self and put on the new self. He said, Dad, this is where I'm going to hit it. I'm going to talk about taking off the old standard of the, the world standard of marriage and put on the new standard of marriage of Jesus Christ. Well, it just so happened that week... A woman called him and said, you know, my boyfriend and I have been living together for eight years and we're kind of feeling guilty about it. We know we need to get married, but he just lost his job and we can't afford to get married. And my son said, I'll tell you what, you get married, I'll, I'll marry you for free. Would you do that? She said, yeah, I'd do it. Then he got an idea. He said, let me ask you something. I'm preaching on this subject this Sunday and it would, would you be willing to get married at the end of my sermon as an illustration of what I'm talking about? She said, would it still be for free? He said, yeah, it would be. Well, she agreed to do it. Well, that week somebody heard about it and went out and bought her a new dress. Somebody else heard about it and made a wedding cake. And at the end of his sermon, the people from the first service came back in after Sunday school and just packed out the place. And they called the groom up and had a prayer. And then they played Here Comes the Bride. And she came down the aisle. And they had a wedding ceremony demonstrating taking off the old standard of the world and putting on the new standard of Jesus Christ. Very brief. There's nothing in the Bible that says how long a wedding has to be. One young couple said to the preacher, said, we want to be married, we want a very short ceremony. He said, really? How short? Short as you can make. He said, do you want to be married? They said, yes. He said, you are. Uh, well. <laughs> but you know, after that service, after that service, there had to be some other living girlfriends that are nudging their, their boyfriend on the way home and say, hey, if they can do it, we can do it too. You can find creative. You can find loving ways to present the truth. But you preach the word. Even though it may be out of season. Secondly, Paul admonishes us to endure hardship. Because persecution of the church will intensify even from within. Now the ministry has always had hardships. Peter and John were warned and then imprisoned. Stephen was stoned. James was beheaded the early Christians in Jerusalem were scattered abroad because of persecution. Paul said, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, a lot of preachers, especially young hip preachers today, want to blame the church because we're not popular with the world anymore. And they think it's because the church of the past has been too hypocritical, been homophobic, been legalistic, been irrelevant. And so they make every attempt to distance themselves from the church of the past. This is not your mother's church. This is a church for people who don't like church. We, we love people here. We're full of grace here. We accept anybody here. But the real reason that the world doesn't like the church is the same reason the world crucified Jesus Christ. Light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And the more evil the world becomes, the more the world will persecute and hate the church. And it's intensifying all of the world. We see that in Muslim countries with beheadings and church burnings and imprisonment. And in America, we've been talking about that, CEOs forced to resign, and restaurant chains boycotted, and teachers fired because they dared to speak out for truth. But have you noticed, persecution is beginning to surface from an unlikely source. From within the church itself. The Apostle Paul warned the Ephesian elders. 
Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth. I read a headline the other day. United Methodist Regional Body accused of bullying pastor for supporting traditional marriage. This pastor was in danger of losing both pulpit and pension because of holding on to biblical marriage. Jude 1.18 says, In the last times there will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who merely who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. Uh, you see these scoffers teaching in seminaries. They, I am convinced the more damage has been done to the United States of America by scoffing liberal seminary professors who undermine the faith of their students than ISIS and all of terrorism combined. But sometimes the insidious pressures against preachers comes from the lay leaders of their own church. I got a call just yesterday. Young preacher said, Bob, I don't know what to do. Two of my elders took me out and said I needed to tone down my language because I was offending people. He said, you said last Sunday that the book Fifty Shades of Grey is pornography. And they said, preacher, do you understand probably 90% of the women in this church have read that book and they were offended. And you said in your sermon that when we send our kids to the universities, they were sending them into a hostile spiritual environment. And this is a university town and a lot of us work for the university and that was offensive. And you said that we need to put in our church bylaws that we will marry only a man and a woman. And if we put that in our church bylaws, the one elder said, I'm a professor at the university we will be labeled as guilty of hate speech and i could lose my job he said you preacher you've got to face the fact that there is coming a day when we'll have to perform gay weddings but in the meantime you've got to tone it down he said bob what should i do now if you have a preacher in your church who is courageous enough to stand for truth You need to come beside him and encourage him. But you also need to go to the lay leaders of your church and say, we've got a special person here. Stand by him. Because there are too many who are already caving in. And the only thing I could say to this guy, you've got to endure hardship. You've got to stand firm in the faith. Uh, An intern from our church. By the way... That, what I just described, that wasn't from a liberal denomination. That's from independent Christian church, which has a tradition of being a conservative church. And I think the wave of persecution, many times, the first wave is going to be from within. Uh, we had an intern from our church, took a church in uh, Indiana, small church. He was there just several weeks when he discovered uh, the youth minister, who had been there for a while, was announcing to the church that he and his wife were going to have a baby in three months but the problem was they'd only been married for three months and nobody in the church was saying anything about the obvious impropriety of the situation uh, the youth minister's pretty cavalier women in the church were going to throw a shower for her everybody seemed to be happy with it but this preacher new preacher knows first corinthians 5 talks about the church is not to tolerate uh, rank Immorality in its leadership because a little leaven will impact the whole batch of dough. And he churned about that. Oh, I forgot to tell you. The youth minister's wife who's expecting is the daughter of the chairman of the elders. 
But this preacher is a man of integrity, and so he brought up an elders meeting and said, you know, if we don't say anything, it looks to the kids that we're endorsing uh, premarital sex to our congregation, I think we ought to discipline the youth minister. And the elders attacked the preacher. You're judgmental. You're hypocritical. Let him who's without the sin cast the first stone. Don't you know the church is supposed to be a hospital for sick people? It's not a refrigerator for saints. And the preacher had to leave. And the youth minister stayed. Well, the church is a hospital for sinners. But if no one ever gets better in the hospital, it should be sued for malpractice. Now, how are we to respond as as people in the church? Paul says, you keep your head. You endure hardship. You do the work of evangelists. You discharge all the duties of your ministry. Don't cower. Don't cave in. Don't get bitter and retaliate. Don't fight with the weapons of the world. But you endure hardship. You stand for truth regardless of the consequences and trust on the protection of God. Years ago, I got a really nasty anonymous letter and it really cut me to the quick. And just so happened that day I had lunch scheduled with Steve Chapman, who is a gospel singer out of of, uh, Nashville. And Steve's a... Wonderful Christian, but he's kind of a sanguine temperament. And I said, Steve, i got to apologize for my melancholy spirit today. I, I got this nasty anonymous letter, and I showed it to him. He read it, and uh, I was hoping he'd give me some sympathy, but he said, Well, now you got that woe off your back. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? Hey, Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. You got that woe off your back now, just go on. <laughs> this is a flea bite. Hebrews 12.3 says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you don't grow weary and lose heart. No one was under more scrutiny or attack than was Jesus Christ. His enemies didn't just criticize him. They plotted to kill him and then they were successful. And I'm such a wimp. I start whining about a few nasty tweets and mean-spirited anonymous letters. Hebrews 4.12 says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Endure hardship. Hang in there. Persecution is going to increase. Maybe even from within the church. Here's one more admonition from this passage. Long for his appearing, because the world, and even the church, is probably going to have less and less appeal for you. The Apostle Paul was eager for the Lord to return because his life on earth was getting less and less pleasant. I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. Now, the drink offering was spliced out on the ground as an expression of thanks to God. There was no retrieving it for secondary use. It was spent. And Paul's energy was spent. He was just drained. Shipwrecks, beating, imprisonment, rejection, muggings, stoning. But he fought a good fight. He'd been battling Satan and his minions for three decades. And now he's an exhausted soldier. And death was imminent. He could see the time of his departure was at hand. The Romans were probably going to execute him. Maybe behead him. And he wouldn't mind if Jesus came back tomorrow and he could escape that last enemy. He longed for the Lord's return. The sooner the better. But since he kept the faith, he regarded death as just a departure. He used a nautical term, picturing a ship hoisting its anchor, sailing out to sea. But you expect the ship to anchor in another harbor with new relationships and new joys. And Paul knew there's a crown of righteousness awaiting for me. He knew that his works 
when tested by fire, were not wood, hay, and straw. They were silver and gold and precious stones that would survive the judgment. And so he said, I long for the Lord to come. Now, not everybody does. Not all Christians do. When my son, Phil, was about four months from marrying a beautiful girl, Lisa Corey, I preached a series on the second coming, and my son came to me. Dad said, how soon do you think this is going to be? <laughs> I, I knew what he was thinking. He, he didn't mind the Lord coming back, but he'd like for him to wait until he had a few months of, of marriage. Let me share with you three reasons why, as I get older, I find myself becoming increasingly eager for the Lord Jesus to return. First, I'm eager for him to come to silence the mockers. I am so fed up with God's name being blasphemed and God's people being ridiculed by arrogant entertainers and lying cretins in the media. And I'd like to hear him, see him bow. You know, Bill Maher of HBO, he makes fun of Christian people. He says we're ignorant for believing the Bible. When Tim Tebow was, had a good testimony, he called him a homeschool nerd. He had a question the other day for somebody. What about your imaginary Jesus? Would, you know, My friend Wayne Smith says, I know the Bible says we're not supposed to hate anybody. But if God ever changes that rule, I got my guy picked out. <laughs> And I, I'm a competitor. I, I like to win. And the Bill Mars and the Bill Nye, the science guy, and Rosie O'Donnell and Michael Moore and Barry Lynn make me mad. <laughs> and like David, I, I cry out, how long, O oh Lord? Now, I know God doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants everybody to come to repentance. But I long for them to be humbled or to be silenced. And I long for that day when... Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Another reason I long for the Lord's return is to escape future troubles. I am going to turn 72 years old in three months. If God permits me to live that long. Now I know if God permits me to live another decade, according to Psalm 90, this decade is full of trouble and sorrow. I see some friends of mine just ahead of me going through some things I don't necessarily want to go through. Arthritis and operations and dementia and caregiving and, and grief. And I don't have as much to look forward to as I used to. I've had a great life with good health. I really wouldn't mind if I just could miss those unpleasant experiences and be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That would be the best of both worlds. 2 Corinthians 5.1 says, We know that when the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building of God, eternal in the heavens. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. And it's not just the unpleasant health problems I wouldn't mind escaping. But it appears to me, unless the Lord dramatically intervenes, This world's going to become increasingly uncomfortable. Race riots, rampant diseases, brutal terrorist attacks, increased persecution of believers. I'm kind of eager for the Lord to come. I can just escape all that. The tribulation. And please don't misinterpret what I'm about to say. But I don't enjoy going to church services as much as I used to. Some of it is a generational thing. I grew up with a lot of emphasis on reverence, and now some more emphasis on joy. And 
That's okay. Some of it has to do with giftedness. I am a terrible singer. And uh, I, I like some of the praise songs, not all of them. But all of the praise songs are written by a high tenor. And, and I, I, I can't get up there. And just about the time I get so I can sing them, they put them on the shelf and we're doing something else. I was in a church as a guest speaker a while back. They sang three straight songs I didn't know. And then the worship leader said, now we're going to teach you a new one. Well, <laughs> and this once in a while, I'd like to sing Victory in Jesus again. You know? <laughs> now, I, I still like going to church and... and uh, it moves me sometimes, but not as often anymore. And I long for the Lord's return because I've had enough of the foretaste of glory divine and I want the real thing. <laughs> but one other reason I long for his appearing, and that is just to be with God. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then when we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Just imagine for a minute seeing the Lord Jesus face to face. Now we see through a glass darkly. But then, face to face. Can you imagine hearing him say to you, Well done. Oh, Lord, I got so many sins. I've forgotten about those. They're buried in the deepest sea. Well done, good and faithful servant. What a day that will be when my Jesus I will see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day that will be. And imagine the excitement of embracing your family members and loved ones who have preceded you in death and hearing them squeal with delight at your arrival. I was teaching a Saturday morning men's Bible class not long ago. We were talking about death and dying. And I said, how many of you in here are over 70 years of age? A bunch of guys raised their hand. I said, do you fear death more or less as you get older? All oh, they said, Bob, you fear death less as you get older. I said, why is that? And Butch Dabney said, you got more friends in heaven than you got on earth. <laughs> Fisher Jones said, you know, Bob, I'm 91 years old. I hope I die pretty soon. My friends are going to think I didn't make it. (laughs) Can you imagine what that's going to be, that reunion? And imagine that first worship service when we gather around the throne and we pay tribute to the one who was and is and is to come. I think Gabriel will blow the trumpet call to worship and all of a sudden appearing before us will be thousands of angels in this heavenly choir and halfway through their song they'll say y'all join in holy 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 and I'll open my mouth and I'll be able to sing and sound like Jack (laughs) and I'll be able to reach two or three octaves surprising myself and then I think Gabriel will call Hey, George Beverly Shea and Cliff Barrows, come on up here and lead us in How Great Thou Art. And we'll sing How Great Thou Art. And then we'll have a series of testimonies. Noah, come on up here and tell us. King David, Apostle Paul, Simon Peter. And then after all of that, Jesus Christ will walk onto the platform. And I see him opening up the scripture and showing us things in the Bible that were there all the while. And we missed them. 
And we're going to be like the two on the road to Emmaus saying, didn't our hearts burn within us when he opened to us the scriptures? And then Jesus said, in my father's house, there are many rooms. I wonder what those rooms are. I I think one's going to be a question and answer room. We can go in and have all the questions we've ever had. Lord, that seven-year-old boy, we prayed, had leukemia. We prayed and fasted. Why in your plan did you let him die? He'll tell us. Lord, the Grand Canyon, was that really millions of years of evolution? Or was that, was that the result of Noah's flood? Lord, in Ephesians, you talk about predestination. Would you explain... <laughs> The difference between predestination and foreknowledge. I've been teaching that for 40 years and I don't know what I was talking about. (laughs) Could you explain that? And Lord, how come the Cubs could never win the World Series? Why didn't you let that happen? Ephesians 2 says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Expressed to us in the kindness in Christ Jesus. That word show means to reveal in an ongoing progressive way. Some people think as soon as we get caught up into heaven, we're going to know everything. I don't think so. I think we'll have a greater capacity to learn and to remember. And we'll spend all of eternity learning more and more about the incomparable riches of his grace. When I got the news years ago, that Bob Burkhead's. 24-year-old daughter had been killed instantly in an automobile wreck. I immediately drove to the Burkhead's home. Bob loved his daughter. She was his golfing buddy, and she had just got engaged that day, five hours before she was killed. I walked into this home loaded with people trying to comfort them. Here's Bob Burkhead, ex-athlete, six feet Seven inches tall, just a wet rag of grief. I embraced him and I said, Bob, I'm so sorry, but we've got to be near the return of Jesus Christ when Jesus is going to come and make all things right. And he said, oh, oh, I wish it were today. I wish it were today. In view of the Lord's appearing, You preach the word, even though it's going to be increasingly unpopular to do so. And you endure hardship because persecution will intensify sometimes even from your own number. And you long for his appearing since this world's going to become less and less meaningful to you anyway. And the Lord... The righteous judge will give you a crown of righteousness on that day. Not to you only, but unto all them also who love his appearing.